0: mindset, parenting, and of course, all the nuances of pregnancy and postpartum. From expert interviews to engaging conversations and reflections, this podcast is your trustworthy, relatable resource for learning how to practice brave through every season in your life. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Jocelyn Fitzgerald. She's an OBGYN, and we're going to be talking about hysterectomies today and just the kind of span of pelvic health considerations for women across their lifespan. And the more work I've done with pregnant postpartum athletes and the coaches and practitioners I work with, realizing there's a huge disconnect and misunderstanding, almost mystery surrounding hysterectomies when they're indicated, what actually happens and what that means before and immediately after and long-term for women, especially as they're pursuing Fitness again across their lifespan. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Fitzgerald here to chat with us. So, will you please introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Jocelyn Fitzgerald. As you said, I am um, like my technical title, I'm an assistant professor of OBGYN and reproductive sciences at the University of Pittsburgh at McGee Women's Hospital. And I am specifically in the division of neurogynecology and reconstructive pelvic surgery. So I deal with a lot of the pelvic floor disorders that women encounter mostly, you know, postpartum, but a ton of pelvic floor disorders happen, uh, in women who never have have babies. And I see those patients of course, as well. So I'm very excited to talk about hysterectomy today because I do a lot of them. And, uh, I think it's true. My patients are so confused. They need more time than sometimes I even have to offer to like explain everything. And it's just be so good if women knew more before they even show up to see me.
0: Right. I feel like everything that has to do with the vagina is just like, so (laughs) either misunderstood or not talked about at all. At all. You know, kids, teenagers, young adults. And then honestly, not even into like pregnancy, it's not till postpartum. And almost like when something goes wrong that people are like, Oh, well now I need to understand how my correct.
1: Body works. Right? And I hate that. Right. I'm on a personal mission <laughs> to get rid of this, like damage control mode that we, this mentality we have for women and their health postpartum. It's like this whole mystery period where it's like, if something happens, come see us and then we'll tell you what's going on. Like we're withholding this secret, Right. About what we know. It's so stupid. We really should um trust women to have more information.
0: That's crazy that it even takes something significant feeling with somebody's like pelvic floor or vagina or symptoms to even consider going to pelvic floor physical therapy, they don't know what that is. They don't know what a urogyne is. They don't know like what their options are. And so it is like this huge mystery. And like you said, like it's not even just postpartum people. It is
1: women in general, right? Who are anyone who- Aging, time, living, life. Right. Things are going to change in your body and you should know what those things might be.
0: Right. So what do you typically see? What is your caseload
1: like? Yeah. Great (laughs) question. So the vast majority of hysterectomies I do are done in the, in the context of pelvic floor reconstruction. And we can get into that a little more, but, um, I see patients who have vaginal or pelvic organ prolapse, which is when they feel a bulge in their vagina because the vagina is literally falling down into sort of like the lower parts of the pelvic floor or even bulging outside the body. And that can involve a few different pelvic organs. I have my pelvic model here today because it gets so difficult to explain it without showing people. So I can get into that a little more. And I see women who have um, a lot of incontinence, um, both something called stress incontinence, which is big in athletes. Anytime you put a physical stressor on your abdominal wall and bladder and pelvic floor, that's kind of like pushes the urine out when you're lifting, coughing, jumping, laughing sneezing, um, or something called urgency incontinence, which is when they're constantly running to the bathroom. I see women a lot for like postpartum pelvic floor trauma in the more like acute setting. If they've had a really tough delivery, particularly if their delivery involves some, um, disruption of muscular structures, like their anal sphincter or like their actual pelvic floor muscles that they have urinary issues, postpartum. And I see a ton of women with, pelvic floor spasm and pain, um, which is a big part of what I treat.
0: Right. Absolutely. So anything from a significant tear, so that'd be like a grade four kind of tear, Correct. um, to prolapse, to pain, mm-hmm. to incontinence, you kind of see it all from yeah. a, do you do like both management and like kind of consultation around that? Or is it mostly like those who are on the path
1: towards surgery? as it stands now, the formal title of my field is female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. So the medicine part, absolutely. I manage patients without surgery all the time. It's very difficult to do that without the help of my pelvic floor physical therapy colleagues. But in that sense, it's really no different than an orthopedic injury. You know, if you had a sprained ankle or a torn ACL, you might rehab that knee right. or ankle before you have surgical management. I mean, right. same thing as post-operative. If I operate on someone I and they continue to have pain or dysfunction, I will send them to physical therapy. We have a very symbiotic relationship. I like could not do my job without them. So I definitely see people for, for non-operative medical management, as well as people who come to me when the, the problem has gotten sort of beyond what can be fixed with with therapy and does need some reconstruction. And that's when it becomes almost a, a plastic surgery kind of situation.
0: Right. Well, I really love that you are so collaborative with our pelvic floor physical therapists and those that are doing that kind of work. Again, because yeah. I think people, when they realize, like, man, something's just not right with my vagina, like whether it's like functionally yeah. or like something has changed, they're like, it didn't used to look like that or the amount of um, trauma that can happen from vaginal childbirth. Like, I think that they don't really know who to end up with. Like they'll like reach out to me and then I refer to a PT and the PT might refer to you or they go to you and then you refer to the PT and it's everybody who sort of has like a touch on this realm and this conversation, but it is such a collaborative approach to truly helping so many different people.
1: Yeah. I mean, the demand has always been there, but it is definitely within the past. The internet, as we've right. lived, like brought so much of this out of the shadows, as millennial women yeah. are aging. I mean, millennial women are en- entering perimenopause; like they are finishing childbearing. A lot of them, we're all in like our late thirties now. <laughs> we're not like teenagers, right. um, and I think that that has. The, the gaps in women's health that were previously not discussed out of shame or like normalizing things that are rampantly holding women back into healthy aging have finally like the lid is being blown off of that. And I'm very grateful, actually, that I think polycore PT has done a better job of rapidly expanding their ability for patients to access them more so than OBGYN has been able to do. And there's there's some systematic reasons behind that, but thank God for them.
0: Right. Well, I'm grateful for your work and uh, <laughs> like the level of awareness that you have as far as collaborating and really trying to have that, you know, whole person approach to helping people. Because when they come into you, are they typically like at the end of their rope, so to speak, like they're so desperate yeah. for answers and like now they're coming to you or are you seeing yeah. people like really proactively?
1: So, I would say the vast majority, sadly, are people at the end of their rope. Like, it's gotten to the point, I mean, and this might also be a little skewed by this point in history we're living at with, like, post pandemic, if you even want to call it that. People who have been literally sitting on this problem for two years and now they're coming and they are at the absolute end of their rope for many reasons, like mentally. Right. Emotionally from both COVID and from suffering from their public floor disorder without help for a couple of years. But I will say I'm heartened by the fact that the millennial population I've already mentioned are coming in sooner. Yeah. And they're saying, like, oh, I was told I have this the cysteile or I feel these symptoms. And I just wanted to like establish care with you and see where I am so that if things I don't want to do anything necessarily right now, but if things get worse, I'm your patient, I know what's going on, I'm just here for sort of an educational consultation. I'm like, oh my God, this is so much easier than talking like a 65-year-old woman, truly off the ledge sometimes because like her her vagina has totally prolapsed and she just doesn't even know what to do. And she's gone to the ER and she's panicked and she lives two hours away from me where there's no urogynecologist. And after months of waiting has made her way to my office. That's a much more stressful visit for both me and the patient.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so much to think about. You're right. Cause I think, you know, I so much see this out of my own lens as being a millennial and it's like, well advocate for yourself and like do this and do that. And like we have access to so much information now with social media
1: for better or for worse. But (laughs) um, I think for better mostly, but it's definitely a double-edged sword.
0: Totally. Um, But you're right. Thinking about those who have been waiting, who are maybe a little bit older, don't have access to as good of information when something Mm -hmm. happens with their vagina. It's like, who do I talk to about this? Cause there's so much like
1: shame and stigma and embarrassment. Um, So I think they have cancer most of the time Yeah, they come in. They're like this big pink ball fell out of me. Like I must be dying. And I have to explain, I'm like, that is your vagina. It's sort of come inside out, your bladder is behind it. It lost its support over time. We can fix it. And they are just explaining that to someone when they have no idea what their anatomy was before it fell out of them is I need more time with those patients. Truly. I mean, explaining that, that is like an hour and a half of education to be done.
0: Well, without, um, an hour and a half of education, can you just like real quickly kind of recap, like prolapse, what that is, what organs can prolapse, and it's not the actual organ falling out. Like, what is that? Like, I know you use the tent analogy on social media that I really, really like if you could just break that down. Sure.
1: (laughs) I don't know if people will be able to watch this video, but I'm just going to hold up my pelvis and try to explain it best I can. So here is a pelvis, a female pelvis with a vagina and a vaginal opening, here's the urethra and here's the rectum. So what people usually feel is a bulge coming out of the vaginal opening. And the question is like, what is it that is falling? Normally women who I see who have a prolapse, the vaginal opening is a little bit bigger than this model. They've had some, these muscles here that kind of hold the sort of shape of the vagina. These are all also the pelvic floor muscles have usually been traumatized or stretched by, childbirth, chronic constipation, aging, that kind of thing. So what is sort of really falling? So I'm going to pull out my organs. So one can be the bladder, which I can't, it would be so nice if this model. Literally, I could like pull the prolapse out. Like the bladder will bulge like out behind the vaginal skin. So people don't understand is that like the pink ball they see is just vagina skin that has started to balloon with the bladder behind it. So your bladder can bulge from the top of the vagina. And then this is a uterus with, I was going to, I'll use this for my hysterectomy explanation. This is a uterus with like the tube of the vagina attached. So I can actually take this apart. I literally bought this because I had to explain it to so many people that like the cervix is at the top of the vagina. This is like the vaginal canal And this entire thing can like kind of come inside out and like the uterus can drop down and like telescope into the vagina. So that's like the top, like I use the tent analogy you said, there's like the front wall of the tent, there's the back wall of the tent, and then there's like the pointy part at the top. The uterus is at the pointy part, the bladder sits on the top of the vagina, And then the rectum goes underneath of the vagina. And if you have weakness in the floor of the vagina, then the rectum actually can bulge like up and out. That's called a rectocele, which is very confusing for people because a lot of times they think a rectocele is rectal prolapse. That is not what it is. A rectocele is just when the floor of the vagina is weakened and the rectum like bulges underneath it, like the way roots of a tree will push up a sidewalk. And rectal prolapse is when like the rectum actually falls out through like the rectal opening, which a colorectal surgeon usually has to help us fix that. But those are the three main parts of the vagina that can fall the front wall, the back wall and the top.
0: Is there a more common organ that prolapses?
1: The bladder is probably the one that I see the most. Okay. Why is that? I think it's a little bit of like a gravity type thing. Yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of really brilliant physicists that have kind of looked at this, but the reason I think it really does have a lot to, I think to do with gravity, like the bladder is being held up by the top of the vagina and the uterus, which is the, the pinnacle of the tent. And those things kind of fall first versus the, floor of the vagina is just sitting straight most of the time. Right. And there's like more space underneath for like the rectum to sort of like sag downwards. Right. The rectus seals I see usually are a result of like a childbirth tear where that tissue was brought back together after delivery. And if that weakens, then that little bulge from below will pop up. But I think the things from the top are more likely to be brought down by time and gravity.
0: Yeah. It's it's just so interesting to me because, again, like this conversation is not a very popular conversation. No. <laughs> right? Because it's like it's no. almost it's like either depressing or they think it's like fear mongering to kind of talk about like yes. it can happen as you get older or when you have a baby like or right. just because of pregnancy or you know, some people are like, did I lift too much? And did I do this? Like, there's just so much fear or shame or embarrassment yeah. or a total, like, this is not going to happen to me. That this does not apply to me. Like I'm too fit right. kind of thought processes, at least that I see Totally. Pinning around, like, you know, what, uh, what might cause it like things that maybe predispose people a bit more to prolapse.
1: Yeah. This is very controversial. And, um, I I agree. I have been (laughs) questioned by people within my own fields, like is doing all this like pre-partum education on pelvic floor disorders, fear-mongering. Like, are we, are you trying to convince women not to have babies? I'm like, no, what, like no harm has ever come from women having more information ever. Like name one situation in history where it hurt women to have more information about like what could potentially happen to them. And also like, what if women, what if there is a woman who's like on the fence about having kids and she's like, you know what, now that I know this could happen, I actually don't think that that having kids is for me. And that is fine too. Like, what are you so afraid of? Are you afraid of women making their own choices with like the empowerment that comes from education, women who want to become mothers are going to become mothers. still. this just helps them, you know, not feel alone or traumatized if, and when these things occur because they are so common. Right. So I do obviously have um, a lot of opinions on that. The second part of your, was there a second part of your question that I just, well, just sort of like what, but, if there's
0: anything that maybe predisposes yeah. people to prolapse.
1: So yes, there are risk factors that we know very well. The number one risk factor is having a vaginal delivery, right? Having an operative delivery, like with vacuum or forceps also increases your risk of prolapse. Like We know that there are women, not a huge number, but definitely like probably once per office day, I see a woman with prolapse who has never had children and they're like, how could this have happened? I never had babies. Well, there's other things can predispose you to prolapse. A lot of women, I think more and more connective tissue disorders like ehlers stanler syndrome, which I think comes up a lot in athletic women, women with joint pain, hypermobile joints, um, is becoming a more and more well-understood um, disease entity among the female population. So connective tissue disorders can predispose you. Chronic constipation can definitely predispose you. Not necessarily a popular thing to say, but pelvic floor disorders are for explainable reasons, very linked to obesity, simply having pressure on the pelvis from more, more weight does put women at risk for incontinence and prolapse, um, chronic cough. So women who are smokers or have other lung disorders that have them cough a lot, anything that puts like repeated pressure right. onto your lower pelvis is going to predispose you to these things. So you don't necessarily have to have A baby to wind up with a vaginal bulge. Right.
0: Yeah. And so I work with a lot of different pregnant athletes that they want to run, they want to lift, they want to do all of these things, which can be a lot of high pressure demands or high impact activities on the pelvic floor. Uh, Do you feel that some of those activities could predispose somebody to an increased risk of prolapse?
1: Sure. Um, you know, this is also like pretty controversial because I would never tell women to stop doing those things. I do encourage any athlete to have proper training in like core stabilization, lower back stabilization and pelvic floor awareness. I think that just like any other part of the body, if you are doing high impact exercise or high intensity, like use of your body that you should have some training and how to prevent injury. Like that is just good practice if you're an elite sort of athlete. So no, I don't think they should avoid those things, but I, I will say that in a patient I see who clearly is, has hypermobile joints or like has had a few kids and is young and they're like a, a power lifter or they, I have patients who work in in factories or on farms they do like really manual labor they do repeated heavy lifting i think that it i'd be lying to them if i didn't say this does put you at higher risk of having these things simply because our bodies are not immortal like they do see it'd be like telling a man who like lifts heavy things at his job like you're at no risk for hurting your back like of course you are, so right. yeah, it can contribute.
0: It's just like any other injury, right? Like just like yeah. you said, like ACL or you know, like rotator cuff. If we do like some of these same patterns over and over over time, and if like right. form, you know, fatigues over time, or was never like well established to begin with, something's got to get. It's not it a get. Get. it's a win, yeah. and sometimes that just happens to be our pelvic organs, right?
1: Correct. So, but and if that, there wasn't so much is, stigma around it, we wouldn't right. like think twice and be like, Oh, you twisted your knee playing basketball. Like, of course everyone does that. Why is it like shameful to be like, Oh, wow. You injured your vagina having a baby. Right. <laughs> like, of course you did. Like it's a muscle bowl and a person is coming out of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> seriously. Yeah. I think there's just been, um, this like illusion around birth that like, it's just, um, we're meant to do this. And I know like that messaging for me was, um, very empowering until it wasn't until I ended up with an emergency section until, and, you know, and then I opted for a repeat cesarean because I was like, control the things that I can. And that was, but that became really empowering. So it's like so much of the messaging around birth and our bodies and fitness, like so much of it is just so dogmatic that, you know we really have to I look mean, at the entire experience to know what is best or right, right for each unique individual
1: i reject that so much like you could say like oh we were all meant to run barefoot like okay like <laughs> fine <laughs> then go like run and like track in the olympics barefoot then right. like i mean to say like our bodies are meant to do something like primitive is so ridiculous because people used to die in childbirth all the time like we're not meant to have glasses either. Like if, (laughs) if that is your argument, it's like we were, we were built to see, like, we shouldn't give people glasses if they can't like, what are you talking about? I mean, I think that, yeah, women like more information, I think will lead to like reset expectations. It'll lead to a lot less trauma and actually makes people feel like a lot more in control when they don't feel isolated because we've decided that this is the body part around which we are going to like build female shame. It's just so ridiculous.
0: Oh, I a hundred percent agree. So let's sort of segue the prolapse conversation into, at what point does this become a conversation about hysterectomies? Because obviously hysterectomies are maybe not obviously, but hysterectomies are not um, just connected to prolapse, but can be. So in terms of prolapse, When would a hysterectomy be a conversation to have?
1: That's a great question. Um, Yes, there are many indications for hysterectomy and they have evolved over time. Um, I will say that hysterectomy is is less common than it used to be because a lot of the reasons women used to be like, oh, take out your uterus, just get a hysterectomy. Like, oh, you're done having kids, take out your uterus. Right. A lot of that has gone by the wayside. Things like IUDs have become excellent medical management of reasons that people used to just be like, get a casual hysterectomy, as though there's any such thing.
0: Because it was but, mostly just like a, a birth control form was saying yeah, was yes. like mostly just used for that reason. Correct. And now it that has. Changed
1: a bit. Yeah, that has changed. And, you know, like IUDs can like heavy bleeding, perimenopausal bleeding, bleeding from even like adenomyosis or small fibroids or Mm -hmm. even like endometriosis treatment. We now know that hysterectomy is not like the be all end all to most of the things we are doing hysterectomies for. That being said, there are absolutely hysterectomies that like need to be done. Mm -hmm. But the way we used to think about them is very old fashioned. So, in terms of when I am doing hysterectomy for prolapse, I will just say, like off the bat, that if you are seeking um, an opinion from an OBGYN or someone who specifically for prolapse and they tell you that doing hysterectomy will fix your prolapse, you should run in the opposite direction because the uterus is just like a casual bystander. It's really the vagina that's prolapsing. So if you do a hysterectomy with no other reconstruction to resupport the vagina and pelvic organs, you're just going to have a prolapsed uterus vagina nothing is going to change. The biggest reasons I do a hysterectomy with a prolapse repair is mostly to kind of just get the uterus out of the way so that I can have easier access to some ligaments deep within the pelvis that will help me reconstruct the rest of the vagina. It just makes the reconstructive surgery a little bit easier to have the uterus out of the way. Got it. Um, That being said, I can do a lot of the surgeries that I offer for prolapse without a hysterectomy. It just requires like a little bit more finagling. That's something called a hysteropexy. And I will do that. Sometimes you can reconstruct a vagina without taking a uterus out. So that is one thing. um, I will say about that. You might be asking this later, but what do I take out? If I do a hysterectomy, I guess I'll like nip that in the bud because that Mm -hmm. can look different. Um, I'll hold up my little uterus again. So what I have here, um, on this little model is this is the uterus. And then inside here inside of the vagina is the cervix, a lot of hysterectomies. And when I say, when I say hysterectomy, what I mean is the uterus, I'm not talking about the fallopian tubes or the ovaries. Okay. A lot of women think that a total hysterectomy means the uterus, the tubes, the ovaries, and the cervix. What an OBGYN or pelvic surgeon considers to be a total hysterectomy is just the uterus and the cervix. We think a partial hysterectomy is just the uterus with no cervix, which sometimes that is done. You'll take out the whole uterus, but leave the cervix in, which occasionally I do do that. What women think a partial hysterectomy is, is just the uterus, but you leave the fallopian tubes and the ovaries in that actually has a totally separate name to me. So sometimes I have to ask patients who are like, I had a partial hysterectomy and I almost always know, know that means they've had their uterus and cervix taken out, but they still have their ovaries and tubes. It just can get very confusing because the language that lay people use and that OB GYNs use is totally different.
0: Why is there such a disconnect? When like, why is it so like confusing to know what there <laughs> is versus what it actually is?
1: <laughs> I do not know. It makes me banging my it, head against the this. wall. <laughs> it's something that happened like historically that now like modern OBGYNs are like banging their heads against the wall, like trying to figure out like why. So I do a lot of education. Like sometimes people come in with prolapse, they've already had hysterectomy in, and I'm like, Oh, you had a hysterectomy. They're like, Oh yeah. I had a partial. And I'm like, Oh God. I'm like, do you have a cervix? They have like, no idea. I'm like, do you have ovaries and, and tubes? And they're like, yes, I have those because I only had a partial hysterectomy. I'm like, oh God. So sometimes I really have to do like some digging. I don't have an answer for you. It, I think it's like, I wish that people would just know that the word salpingectomy is the fancy word for I've had my tubes removed. Oophorectomy is the word for I've had my ovaries removed. Hysterectomy usually means that you've had your uterus and cervix removed and occasionally Surgeons will do a partial hysterectomy, which is when they take out the uterus but leave in the cervix. Very few people do that anymore. I would say actually, the one of the few fields that still does that is mine, and that is if we do a pelvic floor reconstruction with a surgery called a sacrocolpopexy, which involves mesh, and we're leaving in the cervix to protect the vagina from the mesh. Got it. But that's like a story for another day.
0: Yeah. This is some complex stuff and it's no wonder, uh, there's like misinformation and misunderstanding and just like, you know, the whole, like, I don't want to know unless I have to know sort of thought process behind this. It's just, it's a lot, it's a lot that like, we hardly, there's still so many people that you say pelvic floor, they have no idea what that is. So then to talk about like the actual organs and what's being taken out or what needs to come out, it's a whole different thing
1: so complex so when patients come in number one they're in distress because something is really wrong and like the amount of time it takes to educate them is a lot plus it's really traumatic so you have to like unpack all this trauma and misinformation it's the whole thing I will just give a plug there is an amazing you probably follow her um minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon on tiktok and instagram karen tang is her name and she, I like always knew this would happen, but I just never had like the right patient to do it with. She posted a TikTok of herself doing a hyster- a laparoscopic hysterectomy with the permission of the patient and showed women a video of her, of the actual operation. And it has gotten, it's been like her most viral video to date. And she said some really viral videos. Um I think she said, like, she did the math and it's like five percent of the US population at this point has watched this video based on the number of views because women had no idea what was happening during yeah. hysterectomy. And so the video on her page um kind of walks you through it and it's really good. That
0: is really incredible and such a good resource. You know, that's like the blessing of social media, right? Is mm-hmm. like destigmatizing and just educating us on yeah. what we need to know and what questions yeah. we need to ask and just going in a little bit better
1: prepared. Sure. Well, a lot of these platforms will not allow us to post right. these videos because it's a vagina. So right. doing education, you have to use cartoons and you can't really post pictures of actual patients. It's very regulated. So it makes it just another layer, another barrier to women getting information. It's like, we would do better probably like over on OnlyFans. Like, we should go over to OnlyFans and like educate people about gynecology. I 100% would think be that
0: people would pay if
1: we <laughs> went that route. <laughs> can you imagine if I was like, Hi, I'm a professor of OBGYN. I opened an OnlyFans account so I can educate people about vaginal prolapse. Girl, probably, you, that would you, be it, really. It, I think you'd
0: make it killing. I'm not, like, I'm not even lying. Just like my business brain is like, Ooh, what an idea. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's true because even when people have prolapse, they like I've literally had um, like a vulva DM would to me where it's like, which yeah. is so, it's, my world is just very interesting now. You know, I go, I started as a strength conditioning coach and now I'm getting like, <laughs> like just vaginas in my DMs. It's fine. Um, yeah. but sort of like, what is this? Can you what tell me? This? Like, what am I looking at here? And is this I normal? I get asked about like normal all the time when it comes to their their anatomy or their like new anatomy. And so it would be incredible to have a resource where you know you can kind of look and say like, okay, based on this, like this is what I'm looking at here. Because again, nobody has even really looked down there until they feel like
1: they need to look there. Right. So they have no idea what it looked like before. A lot of times I have to have patients like point to something themselves or I'll get a mirror out like in my office. It really is. Even I have tried to like Google right, pictures of various stages of prolapse. So I yeah. can share them on Twitter. Or like people ask me questions and I cannot even like find these pictures. I can find illustrations of them in my textbooks. And like, as a urogynecologist, of course I have like sort of medical pictures of these things, but mm-hmm. patients want to see like a straight up picture of a stage three prolapse. Of an actual of like
0: a 31-year-old female hey. who's had, you know, like where it's like this. a relatable <laughs> image, you know. Yep.
1: And even I can't find those images to share with people. They are very hard to find.
0: Yeah. It's uh well that's where the only fans can come in, huh? <laughs> I, it's
1: <unbelievable. laughs> That's like what we what we're resorting to at this point. Honestly.
0: <laughs> well, so like tell me. What are some of the choices or circumstances that lead to someone opting for a hysterectomy or when you would suggest yes. a hysterectomy for somebody? Because I know yeah. that looks very different for a lot of different very people. Very
1: different depending on the specialist that you're seeing and the actual problem that you have. So um, I really, at this point in, in my career as like a pelvic reconstructive surgeon, I'm really only doing a hysterectomy as part of a prolapse surgery but other, I used to do more like minimally invasive gynecology for like fibroids and endometriosis. I don't want to speak for all of the minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons of the world, but it is definitely a shared decision-making discussion about if and when a hysterectomy may improve a patient's symptoms of either bleeding from a fibroid from, for example, really huge fibroids. Those would be reasons um, to have hysterectomy. If the other treatment modalities either haven't worked out or a patient doesn't want them. If they've completed childbearing, um, once upon a time, there were a lot of hysterectomies done for pelvic pain, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty controversial subject because people used to say like, oh, you have pelvic pain. We'll just take out your uterus. And we now know that that's not really how endometriosis specifically works. The, The hysterectomy itself Um, rarely improves pain for women more than like 25% of the time, the circumstances under which a hysterectomy is indicated for pain and actually does result in women having symptomatic pain improvement is when they have a condition called adenomyosis, which is a little hard to explain, but basically is like endometriosis of the uterine muscle. It's when the lining of the uterus the glands kind of work their way into the muscle and it makes the uterus very like soft and bloody and painful because your period, instead of just like coming, shedding outwards through the vagina is like bleeding into the muscle of your uterus. So it causes a lot of pain with periods. That's a great indication for a hysterectomy. If you've completed childbearing and you're or even if you haven't, if you're like, I'm done with this uterus, that would be a good reason. Um, so yeah, so really big fibroids, bleeding fibroids, As part of a definitive endometriosis surgery with endometriosis removal, uh, for adenomyosis for cancer and for prolapse are the big reasons as we now sort of understand the actual outcomes of having hysterectomy to have your uterus removed.
0: Right. So that's obviously a really big choice because some Mm -hmm. of the like byproducts, I suppose, of hysterectomy Mm -hmm. are like menopause right? Like that would, does that kickstart menopause for some people or does that kind of
1: end? That is a great question. And it comes back to people like understanding the language used for hysterectomy and what organs are actually removed. So on my little model here, these are like the ovaries and the fallopian tubes back here attached to the uterus, having a hysterectomy, which in gynecologic surgery terms is just the uterus, not the tubes and ovaries has not been shown to put people into early menopause. If you have what patients love to call a total hysterectomy, but I call a hysterectomy with a bilateral, meaning both sides, salpingo oophorectomy, which is the tubes and the ovaries. Yes, that will put you into menopause because your ovaries were just taken out. So you're not making estrogen anymore.
0: ovaries. If they go,
1: then menopause. But if, if they, they go, go then, then menopause.
0: Menopause.
1: uterus that goes then maybe. correct maybe not <laughs> okay there is a little bit of gray area which is still being kind of sussed out by the hormone specialist in OBGYN. if you take out someone's tubes and uterus but not the ovaries and they're kind of getting close to menopause there is a lot of shared blood supply between the uterus and tubes and the ovaries. It's not all the same. It's just kind of like the blood vessels come together at certain points where you're making your incision. And there is some theoretical discussion about if you remove the uterus and tubes, does that affect the blood flow to the ovaries in a way that might put someone into an earlier menopause? That being said, that has not been shown with like hot flashes and symptoms to be the case. It has been shown in like hormone levels to possibly be the case. So we don't really know, but the point is, is if you have a hysterectomy and your ovaries are left behind, chances are you have not been put into menopause.
0: Okay. That's really good to know. So what, what is actually done in a hysterectomy? Like obviously things are removed, but can you kind of walk uh-huh. briefly walk me through an entire procedure? No, but like just, you yeah. know, sort of like highlight reel of it.
1: <laughs> totally. Oh, I wish I had um <laughs> um Dr. Chang's video. Yeah. So hysterectomies can be done a few different ways. I do most of my hysterectomies through the vagina because they're literally falling right. down already. So I can like do my hysterectomy without making incisions on the abdomen I can take the uterus out from below. Okay. Um, so the cervix is removed, the uterus is removed. I'm holding up my little mm-hmm. model. So we make an incision in the vagina around the cervix. And then we make an incision around the whole body of the uterus. These like wings on the side is called the broad ligaments it's a ligament that holds your fallopian tubes up next to the uterus and the ovaries are kind of on the back. So like when the ovary releases an egg, it goes like through the fallopian tube, it travels into the uterus and then it gets made into a baby in the uterus. It gets pushed out through the vagina. So we remove, like I said, the cervix, all of this uterus. And then we usually will come like across and take Either just the fallopian tubes or also the ovaries, depending on the reason for the hysterectomy. If you do it like laparoscopically, you come in like from above Mm -hmm. and cut off the tube, cut down to the vagina, and then you make an incision in the vagina last. I just do that in reverse when I do it through a vaginal approach. But I'm glad you asked that question because I had a patient the other day who I did her exam and then was talking to her about her vagina, and she was like, I don't have a vagina. I had a hysterectomy. Like, I don't even. I don't have one i'm like oh yes you do i just did an exam on it like i just had my finger in your vagina she's like oh i thought i didn't have a vagina anymore because i had a hysterectomy i was <laughs> like no all we took out all that that doctor took out was your cervix your uterus and if you had a salpingo oophorectomy they maybe took out your tube tubes but that's it wow
0: So this obviously changes the structure. And you mentioned gravity earlier, like, so Mm -hmm. the whole pressure system Mm -hmm. has now been altered by removing one or multiple organs. So what does that look like for recovery? And even like what somebody feels like down there? Sure. Like Um, And also just like, does it feel like Cause it's feel like something's missing. I'm trying to ask questions in the way of like, if this was me, yeah. <laughs> like, what would, like, I would just want to be just asked like these dumb questions so that it's sure. just really spelled out.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. It has a lot to do with the reason you're having a hysterectomy. Cause this is like a, literally about the size of most uteruses I take out like mm-hmm. really tiny. If you're not pregnant and don't have fibroids, most uteruses are like, the size of a plum sometimes an adenomyotic uterus might be more like an orange, but if you have massive fibroids, I mean, I've taken out uteruses the size of like a 30 week pregnancy. Of course you are definitely going to feel like something is missing in a good way. You'd probably be thrilled. I would hope that you don't have this huge literal like fibroid tumor in your pelvis. Right. Um, but if you have a really tiny uterus, some women don't feel any different at all. If I'm seeing them for prolapse, they're like, yeah, it feels like something's missing because I no longer have a lot of women will use an analogy, like an egg or an orange, like falling out of me. So yes, they feel like something is missing, but usually it's in a good way. If you're having a hysterectomy for adenomyosis or heavy bleeding, Most people like it's, it really wasn't taking up that much room in your pelvis to begin with. So I don't think very many women feel like something is gone. I mean, your colon and your intestines just sort of like settle into the place where your uterus once was Yeah. what anecdotally people will sometimes talk about, which is an issue that I think probably needs to be discussed more is it's pretty hard, um, in a woman who doesn't have prolapsed where like they might actually have like an elongated vagina to do a hysterectomy without losing some length on the vagina, because you have to sew it. You have to sew it closed at the top. Otherwise you just have a hole between your vagina and your intestines. So you, in order to get a good closure on the top up there, this is my little model, like up here, you have to sew this shut. So the vagina ends up becoming a centimeter or two shorter than it was previously. And I think that's where a lot of um, discussion comes about sexual function afterwards. People um, there's been so much research on this actually over the years, whether or not leaving the cervix behind helps some women with sexual pleasure and like orgasmic function, even in studies, it hasn't really panned out that like on average, the cervix has very much to do with women's sexual response. But that being said, there's always the potential for like new pain with intercourse. If now the vagina is shorter, like that just makes sense to a lot of people. So I think you said you had some questions about recovery and you know, what kind of happens. I, I have had patients say, like, I wish someone had told me that my vagina would get shorter after this operation, which I think is fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I think it brings so many different conversations to the table between like, well, what does recovery actually look like? What does it mean? Yeah. Am I at an increased risk of other symptoms if they weren't symptomatic for prolapse prior? Like, maybe yeah. are they now more prone to it um, post hysterectomy? Yeah. And then, even like, what does exercise look like? What does just mm-hmm. like, like, literally everything? I think there's so much confusion
1: around the now what? Yeah. I know. <laughs> And in women's defense, like we also don't like totally really know, um, we've done a lot of studies on like return to activity and it's like, well, what kind of activity, what kind of patient are we talking about? Like, are we talking about an elite CrossFit athlete who's trying to like get back into the gym and is lifting a ton of stuff? I have patients who, you know, again, on average, like liberal activity, more or less going back to what you usually do Mm -hmm. kind of right away might be fine. If they are like a low impact, they were low impact before their hysterectomy. But then there's the patient like who works a very physical job and they're saying like, when can I go back to work? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like at least six weeks, probably eight, definitely 12. You know, we don't like really, really know. I do want to back up to the thing you said earlier, which is chances of getting prolapse after a hysterectomy, because the top of the vagina and the uterus are held up by some ligaments, the ligaments I mentioned that I get the uterus out of the way so I can reach them. They are ligaments that naturally are there to support the top of the tent, to support the top of the vagina. And they insert in every woman in a slightly different place. These ligaments either can enter the cervix, they can enter into the vagina, and some women will be at higher risk for prolapse, even if they didn't have it after hysterectomy, because that support based on where it inserts might be a part of the incision to remove the uterus. So that is totally possible. I do see patients who had a hysterectomy like however many years prior and they're their problems and their bulge sort of showed up after they had the hysterectomy. Is it a little way controversial to know
0: that, like, proactively, like, oh, based on your like natural insertion points, like, yeah, might be more prone for prolapse
1: post hysterectomy. This is a very hot topic <laughs> of research. Actually, okay. a lot of like MRI studies are very like actively yeah. being done on this to see if there's any way to predict this. We don't have one yet. A lot of these questions in women's health that you think would just be duh questions. Women's health is like a hundred years behind men's health in terms of the amount of funding that's been allocated towards it. Or, you know, it wasn't until like women entered medical science that these questions started becoming like rigorous medical questions. So these are still things that we don't know. Um, But these are sort of theories that have been postulated and people are trying to figure it out. So we generally do say that having had hysterectomy probably puts people at higher risk of prolapse just based on the disruption of the support structures that happens due to the vaginal incision. But in terms of like when people can get back to things, we try to both tailor it and do a little bit of guesswork based on what that particular patient is trying to achieve in her recovery. So It's even hard for me. Like I tell women, I really want them back to their regular stuff. But if they're a heavy lifter, I had a patient just last week who like lifts really heavy stuff for her job. And I'm like, you know what? I think we would all really feel better if you didn't go back to lifting 50 pound boxes every day over and over and over again for at least 12 weeks. And I'm kind of using guesswork. I don't know for sure, but the consequences of if those sutures tear apart before they are fully healed is a catastrophic complication where your intestines can literally fall out of your vagina and you could like wind up needing a bowel resection. I mean that's such a catastrophic it's called a vaginal dehiscence complication that I'm like, you know what? Maybe we wait. So right. it's just hard. I like really try like to work
0: with my line of like truly not like you might feel like your brain might be ready, but your body is just not. And yeah, I've been all the time, like yeah. my postpartum part of athletes is like, you don't yeah. want to do too much too soon. Like this, having a baby is a significant yeah. physiological event. A lot of times it's traumatic, even if it's not mentally traumatic, like it just is. We have mm-hmm. to give ourselves a lot of recovery time and then a lot of rehabilitative time to build up that capacity. We yeah. know that in strength and conditioning that we know that. But for some Mm -hmm. reason, when we bring like a vagina into that conversation, it's like all of those principles are sort of disregarded,
1: you know? Yeah, exactly. And I will, um, happily send this to you if you haven't, uh, don't already have it or or Carrie hasn't shared it with you. Um, but I did, um, on a podcast recently about like postpartum running, Mm -hmm. we talked about this article that just came out where a gynecologist like me, a pelvic floor physical therapist, I think a trainer, there's a few different specialists that yeah. got together and wrote this paper and it's actual guidelines. It's me. Or, yes, oh, is that you? Oh my God. I'm so yeah. embarrassed. No, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. I'm okay. So that. so, it's so important <laughs> like, that in our year of like the Lord 2022, that that guideline finally exists because like yes. we had no check boxes. Like right. what were you pre prepartum? What are you now? And what are, what symptoms do you have currently? And it's so much based on like the individual, you can speak to it more than about like some universal experience that women should or shouldn't have in returning to activity. So thank you. But it's also super embarrassing that it's 2022 and we still didn't have that. So thank God.
0: No kidding. And it's still just like, we were going through it just saying like, God, this is like, this is so generic yet. It is so much better than nothing
1: and nothing. And it
0: at least kind of highlights the, the team members that are needed Mm -hmm. to have this conversation so that we're Mm -hmm. truly able to support women across their lifetime of fitness. And like postpartum is almost like this first, like hump where we got to go, okay, like maybe things need to look different now. And then, then what, you know, and then like menopause is the next one. And then like Mm -hmm. surgery, sickness, whatever, like there's so many, like bumps along the way in our life. And we just don't have a lot of information for navigating them. And I know that uh, right. that's a topic you and I could both probably preach about quite a bit.
1: <laughs> totally. And I also have no prescription for anything like more for whole women's wellness, more than physical activity. Right. I mean, can they contribute to some pelvic floor stuff? Sure. But if I had to choose between having a woman have a pelvic floor disorder and like being in her house, not active. Right. Like that to me is not an acceptable trade-off for longevity, mental health, and like physical overall health.
0: Right. Just to quality of life. So how do we like bridge that gap a little bit? Um, that's, I mean, it's a big conversation. So for somebody who's recovering from hysterectomy, they want to get back into exercise Are some of the guidelines similar to progressive overload for maybe postpartum or somebody who has prolapse where you know, maybe we adjust some of their breathing strategies or postural strategies or, um, just truly like progressively overloading them as time goes on and increasing that capacity. Mm -hmm. Would you say that there's a lot of parallels there in your opinion?
1: Huge parallels. So probably a very similar article could be written Mm -hmm. from like extrapolating the postpartum return to activity article to post hysterectomy return to activity article with the caveat I mentioned, which is that like we are very conservative about that incisional healing just because the consequences are so catastrophic. I'm not saying that they wouldn't be as catastrophic for postpartum, but yeah. No, that's, having your bath I mean, vagina hiss is like really bad. Yeah.
0: That's quite a different consideration there.
1: <laughs> yeah. But 12 weeks, like at 12 weeks, I t- like, I take the wheels off the bus at that point. And I let people do like any activity that as long as it doesn't like put direct pressure on that incision, I'm like, you can walk as much as you want. You can do like low impact. You can sit and even do like some weights. Yeah. I mean, you can modify and after 12 weeks, I'm kind of like, do whatever you want. Yeah. Go to a pelvic floor PT if you want to learn some like pelvic awareness strategies.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's so huge just for, for women in general, especially female athletes. So many of, many of us have been taught to like brace out or brace down into the pelvic floor. And if that is your tendency, mm-hmm. even prior to pregnancy, like I would like, I just, that's something that I try to kind of untrain so that we are yeah. managing pressure better. During these high pressure stages of life, and recovering yeah. from any kind of like pelvic surgery um, or postpartum just requires us to be a lot more aware about what we're doing. Like, what what have we yeah. always done, and is that serving us right now, or is it potentially creating a vulnerability?
1: Right. I totally, I totally agree. But you know, it's a very, it's a yeah. very important organ system. <laughs> like, it's, it's right. All life comes from us. You know, we should like have these guidelines to protect our like very valuable organs. <laughs>
0: right. Anytime you want to write a research study, my friend, let's uh, <laughs> let's do it.
1: <laughs> Let me know. Yes. There's yeah. so much to be done.
0: Well this has been such an eye-opening conversation and I know that it's going to be such a source of quality information for so many people, whether they're navigating it or maybe yeah. their aunt or their mom or grandma, like whoever, mm-hmm. whether they're you know, on that path themselves, or, you know, they had a hysterectomy 10 years ago or whatnot. I know this is going to be really insightful. So where yeah. can people I hope it helps. Uh, I, I know it. Well, it's opened my eyes <laughs> quite a bit. Um, where can people find out more about you and what you do?
1: Yeah. Um, I, as like a pretty busy surgeon have the easiest time on, Social media, just tweeting about this stuff. So um, I'm on Twitter a lot at J Fitzgerald MD. You can find me on Instagram. It's at Pittsburgh Euroguine. Um, I tend to I repost like so much good stuff from pelvic floor PTs and people who are better content creators than I, or maybe have more time for it. I don't know. Although I always I'm like, I just need to make like a vagina TikTok. Who knows? Maybe you'll find me doing pelvic floor education over. On OnlyFans, I would like to just yeah. clarify that as a joke to my employer that I will <laughs> not be doing that, but maybe there's a time I like it. for it. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe it says a lot about my profession that we need to even think about that kind of thing because there's some very large accounts, um, people who are really well known in the OBGYN space who like, can't even post YouTube videos educating about female anatomy because they're taken down by whatever the guidelines are on YouTube. And then I'm very searchable on the internet You can Google me, find me. I'm pretty easy to find.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and the work that you are doing in this world. It is incredibly valuable and you're very appreciated.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much as, as are you. And I really am very embarrassed that I didn't realize you were on that very brilliant paper, which I'm sorry. Like the the lowly (laughs) person who's like, I can help
0: with parts of this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. You, you are helping so many women. And my goal is to keep women active, like pelvic floor disorders, incontinence prolapse should not keep you from maintaining your cardiac and musculoskeletal health yeah, as you age. Like nothing is more important. So if I can keep women in that game longer, then I will have succeeded.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you for this conversation.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practice Brave Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and help us spread the work we are doing to improve the overall information and messaging in the fitness industry and beyond. Now, if you are pregnant and you are looking for a trustworthy exercise program to follow, I have you covered. The Pregnant Athlete Training Program is a well-rounded program for pregnancy with workouts for each week that are appropriate for your changing body. That's 36 weeks of workouts, three to four workouts each week and tons of guidance on exercise strategy. We also have an at-home version of that program. If you are postpartum and you're looking for an exercise program to follow, the eight week postpartum athlete training program would be a really great way to help bridge the gap between rehab and the fitness you actually want to do. From there, we have the Practice Brave Fitness program, which is an ongoing strength conditioning program where you get new workouts each week and have a lot of guidance from myself and my co-coach, Heather Osby. This is the only way that I'm really offering ongoing coaching at this point in time. If you have ever considered becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, I would love to have you join us. Pregnancy and postpartum athleticism is a self-paced online certification course that will uplevel your coaching skills and help connect the dots between pelvic health and long-term athletic performance, especially during pregnancy and postpartum. Become who you needed and become who your online and local community needs by becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach. Thank you again for listening to the Practice Brave podcast. I appreciate you and please help me continue spreading this messaging, this information and this work.